We're at the start of a staring match in Washington that will almost certainly last into the summer. At issue is the federal debt limit, which Congress must raise sometime soon or risk triggering a national or even global recession. On one side of the standoff is the White House. We're not going to work our way around this. We're not going to negotiate on this. This is the basic, the basic duties of Congress. Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre says President Biden wants lawmakers to raise the debt ceiling with no strings attached. Many House Republicans would very much like to attach some strings in the form of major spending cuts. Here's Congressman James Comer of Kentucky on CNN this week. Republicans were elected uh, with a mandate from the American people in the midterm elections. We campaigned on the fact that we were going to be serious about spending cuts. So the Senate's going to have to recognize the fact that we're not going to budge until we see meaningful reform with respect to spending. Someone will have to blink before long. The standoff will end with either a bill to raise the debt limit or a catastrophic default this summer. Along the way, well, here's how Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez of Texas put it to Fox News. The debt ceiling is no doubt gonna be a knife fight. That's why we have to start. Consider this, as the debt ceiling time bomb keeps ticking, we're taking a look back to 2011, when the government came within hours of default. We'll ask two negotiators from that crisis what it can teach us about where we're headed. From NPR, I'm Juana Summers. It's Wednesday, January 18th. Support for NPR and the following message come from Capital One, the 2023 lead sponsor of NPR Music. Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. Details at CapitalOne.com. What's in your wallet? Credit approval required. Capital One Bank, USA, N.A. It's Consider This from NPR. The economy is driving towards a cliff and my hands are tied. That's essentially the message of a letter from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen to congressional leaders. If Congress does nothing, the country will default on its debt sometime this summer. And that would not be good. It's bad. It's just a question of how bad. That's Rohit Kumar. He's a principal at PricewaterhouseCoopers, where he advises businesses on economic and tax policy. Most models suggest, uh, you know, at least a two-quarter recession in the United States. It's a drop in the market, spike in interest rates, mortgages go up, credit card loans go up, auto loans go up, all of that, you know, to the harm of the general public. To avoid this, Congress will have to raise the nation's debt limit. Here's how Harvard economist Jason Furman explains it. Congress has to give Treasury permission every time it goes out and borrows money, which it has to do quite a lot because we spend more than we collect in taxes. Starting about 100 years ago, they gave a blanket permission that you can borrow up to a certain amount. And you can't borrow past that, even if you're borrowing money to pay bills that Congress itself passed a law saying you have to pay. Right now, the amount is set at $31.4 trillion, and in her letter to Congress, Yellen said the U.S. will hit that limit Thursday. It's not an immediate disaster. The Department of Treasury can use what Furman describes as under-the-hood accounting moves to stabilize things, but that will only work for so long. This is really more of the starting gun for a process that you know, five, six months from now, um, we'll get much more serious when those extraordinary measures run out and the government would be faced with defaulting on the debt or defaulting on its other obligations if nothing was passed by Congress. 
I spoke with Jason Furman along with Rohit Kumar, who you heard earlier, because they sat on opposite sides of the negotiating table during the most perilous standoff over the debt ceiling. That was in 2011 when the government came within hours of a default. Furman was an economic advisor to then-President Obama, and Kumar was a top aide to Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. I wanted to know what their experiences might tell us about what to expect this time around. So thinking back to where we were in 2011, Jason, from your perspective, how close did the country actually get to default? And what was it that finally broke through the ice there? There were moments when I was pretty scared. We had an initial set of meetings that actually Vice President, then Vice President Biden, um, oversaw. And I thought they were very amicable. Everyone got along really well, um, but they fell apart. And the meetings moved into the cabinet room and it was pretty acrimonious and it was pretty ugly. um, And I was pretty nervous, but I did know that everyone in that room really understood the gravity of the situation and um, the need to solve it. And so for me, um, that was the ace in the hole that made me think um, that we'd get it done. Now, for that to work, you do need the people in the room to have enough power on the people outside of the room as well. And there I always knew if Senator McConnell agreed to something, he would get Republican senators to agree to. Frankly, I was more nervous about Speaker Boehner and whether the Republicans in the House would follow him. And right now I'd be terrified that even if Speaker McCarthy had a view that he could line up the votes from his caucus to implement that view. So I think I was probably more nervous than Jason. And I distinctly remember Friday night, 72 hours before default, I did not see a path to an agreement. And I said as much to my wife at the time. I said, we are in, I used a word I won't use now, but I expressed a lot of uh, dismay about the possibility of striking an agreement. And it wasn't actually until the following morning that we had kind of the final breakthrough. And then we spent the next couple of days rapidly drafting this into law. And to Jason's point, it's because ultimately everyone in the room understood this had to be done. There was no way around it. And the consequences of failure were just too terrible to actually contemplate. I should say Rohit did carry around a binder um, that on the cover of his binder it said, buy gold. At the time, he told me it was just a joke, but but listening to him now, I'm, I'm nervous. Jason, you alluded to this a bit, but you made the point that one of the reasons why you thought that there could possibly be an agreement is because the people outside the room would follow the lead of the people inside the room. And I'm thinking about what the House looks like today with Speaker McCarthy's slim majority. To both of you, how does that change things? And as from people who have been in these rooms, what do you think that the current makeup of the House and the Senate tells us about how this might go? Look, I think it makes it much harder to have any form of negotiation. I think it's that experience and how close we came to the brink in 2011, how much more difficult a negotiation would be now that has informed um, this administration's approach and, frankly, the approach that most administrations take, um, which is that they're not going to negotiate over this. It's a basic piece of business that Congress needs to get done. They need to figure out um, how to get it done. Part of how we did it in 2011 was sort of um, messaging type thing that made it look like it was a little bit more of President Obama's fault. It was a mechanism. Probably Rohit designed it. It was super clever. Um, he's one of the few people that would come up with something like that. You know, if you need to do something like that for optics, 
you know, make the president own more of it, that's fine. But to have a big negotiation in the current climate, I think the downsides for the country are much larger than the potential upsides. So on this one, I think the tables have been turned. I'm a little bit more optimistic than maybe Jason is. And and that's because at the end of the day, whatever becomes law um, is not going to be something that gets the votes of only 218 Republicans in the House. You have a democratically controlled Senate. You have a Democrat in the White House. So any bill that becomes law to include something on the debt limit is by definition going to have to be bipartisan. It's not that no Republicans would have to vote for this in the House or the Senate. You would still need 60 votes in the Senate. So you needed a minimum nine Senate Republicans. You would need some cohort of House Republicans as well. But it's not like you've got to get the same 218 that Speaker McCarthy had to get to be elected Speaker. So the narrowness of the majority makes it a little trickier. But I don't think it sort of fundamentally alters the dynamic of how a bill is going to become a law in this arrangement of power. I mean, the issue, and you know the Congress far better than I do, Rohit, is that it needs to come to the floor. And most speakers are very reluctant to bring something to the floor unless at least half of their own party votes for it. And will he be willing to sacrifice um, his speakership, which he has already made an awful lot of compromises to get in the first place? Um, That makes me nervous. No, look, I agree. I think the challenge is, can you get um, a so-called majority of the majority? So out of the, you know, 222 House Republicans, can you get, you know, half of them uh, to vote uh, for whatever the compromise proposal looks like? But that is a much easier hill to climb than getting all 218 Republicans to vote for something that President Biden is going to sign into law. Jason, a question for you on the White House's position on this. Unlike former President Obama, Biden is saying that he has no plans to negotiate over raising the debt ceiling. And I wonder, from your perspective, does he actually have that option? Yes. Now, to be clear, he is going to have to negotiate the level of government spending. Every year in the United States, there's something called discretionary spending, which covers everything from education to national defense, and Congress has to pass those laws every year. So if you want to borrow less, you spend less. Pass a law to spend less. Don't take the debt limit hostage. I think that's his view, and I think that's, based on experience, the right one. Jason Furman, who was an economic advisor to then-President Obama during the 2011 debt ceiling negotiations, and Rohit Kumar, who was a top aide to Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell. It's Consider This from NPR. I'm Juana Summers.